Thanks for downloading this episode from Teachers Talk Radio. You can find the full schedule and listen back to all our shows at ttradio.org. Enjoy the podcast. This show is brought to you in partnership with John Cat Educational, publishing professional development books and resources to support great teaching and learning in schools around the world. Have you checked out their latest releases? Use the code JCTTR2324 for 20% off your order. Don't miss out. Visit johncatbookshop.com to explore their full range of titles and advance your own professional development today. Happy reading. Uh, welcome to the Sunday Social with me, Miss H Teaches, aka Anna Hudson. Um, I am absolutely delighted to be here today. Happy New Year, everyone. This is my first show back for 2024. And as I said, I am absolutely delighted to be here with you today. Firstly, as always, I just want to check in. How are you all? How has your work week been? I hope that you've had some time to yourself over the weekend and that you're in a good place. I hope that last week was a positive one for you. I hope that you're looking forward to the week ahead. Please, as always, take care of yourselves. Reach out if you need any support. You know that everybody here is here to support you. And hopefully today um, we can offer a little bit of an interesting chat, a little bit of CPD uh, for you all. So however you're listening today, whether it's live with me now or if you've downloaded it at a later date, Thank you for choosing to support Teachers Talk Radio. I really hope that you get something out of today's show. Now, now, as always, our show would not be possible without the fantastic partnership of John Cat Educational. And this show is brought to in partnership with them. John Cat Educational published professional development books and resources to support great teaching and learning in schools around the world. Have you checked out their latest releases? Use code JCTTR2324 for 20% off your order. Don't miss out. Visit johncatbookshop.com to explore their full range of titles and advance your own professional development today. Happy reading. So, as I said before, I am delighted to be hosting today and I'm even more delighted to be joined by some very special guests as we explore the focus of today's show, neurodiversity, how do we best support students and staff. Now this is a topic close to my heart, I am passionate about awareness and inclusivity but are we doing enough to support neurodiverse learners and staff? I'm hoping today we can explore that topic. And as I mentioned, I've got some very, very special guests who will be joining me later. But what what do we do as educators? How do we support our colleagues? How do we support our students? Does the mainstream curriculum in both primary and secondary allow neurodiverse learners to fully access learning opportunities? As the workload of teachers ever increases, Are we making enough reasonable adjustments for our neurodiverse colleagues? Currently, according to the National Autistic Society, the government estimate that one in 100 people are autistic. However, many other surveys suggest that this rate is much higher. More men and boys are currently diagnosed than women and girls. 
a ratio of approximately three to one. Now, there's numerous factors that can contribute to this. Autistic characteristics may differ in genders. There may be fewer social difficulties in women and girls than in men and boys. Girls and women have a tendency to mask and often there's misdiagnosis. But before we dive into that, what do I mean when I talk about neurodiversity? Now, for many colleagues who are listening today, we've had lots and lots of training on this, but do we really delve into the specifics? When I'm talking about neurodiversity, I'm talking about aspects such as ADHD, ASC, PDA, ODD, dyscalculia, dyslexia, dysgraphia, Asperger's. Now, two of those that I've just mentioned, PDA and ODD, are only starting to be recognised more recently. PDA, pathological demand avoidance, and ODD, oppositional defiance disorder. Lots and lots of terminology fall under neurodiversity, but are we getting enough training as staff on the specifics related to each one? Do we feel that there's enough training for trainees and ECTs? The Department of Education shows that there are over 166,000 autistic pupils in schools in the UK, an 8% increase since 2020, and 70% of those pupils are educated in mainstream settings. Again, colleagues, are, is enough being done to support those, those learners? As teachers, are we given enough time to explore the topic? to have trial and error to see what works best for individual students and different cohorts. In 2021, National, the National Autistic Society issued a school report saying that a quarter of parents and carers waited over three years to receive support for their child. I've got to say myself that I can attest to that. I have the, um, the unique opportunity, obviously, to work, as many of you know, in alternative provision. I see firsthand the weight that parents and educators have, ha, have to put up with to get the right support for children who not only need a diagnosis, but also need that educational healthcare plan to put in place the best support. Seven in 10 pupils from this National Autistic Society report said that school would be better if teachers fully understood autism. But colleagues, how can we best understand that if we don't get the opportunity to have the correct CPD, to have the time to fully learn about our students' needs? Dr Tony Lloyd of the ADHD Foundation stated that ADHD remains statistically undiagnosed and undertreated in the UK. We know that waiting lists for pathways are incredibly long across the country. For many educators, we share the frustrations of our parents and carers who know that their children need this additional support but cannot get it because the NHS is currently so overwhelmed. So what is the impact on education and how do we best support within the classroom? Well, it's estimated that each classroom in the UK has at least one neurodiverse pupil, although many of us will agree that in reality, with those waiting lists that I mentioned, it's likely to be much, much, much higher. 
Now, I would say that all of us in schools do our best to support neurodiverse learners as much as we can. There have been some great, great progress. For example, Senko support, IEPs, EHCPs, they all play their part. And I would say from my experience of working with mainstream schools, that process is, is, is positive. You know, I think that there are lots and lots of schools that are working in great partnerships, not just SENCOs and staffs, but also reaching out to um, to other agencies, to other charities to get that support. But as I mentioned, we know that the pathways and the EHCP waiting lists are so high. So how do we practically support pupils in the here and now? In the here and now, I've got um, a a really high ratio of neurodiverse pupils in my class. And as I mentioned before, I know that working in alternative provision, I have the luxury of a smaller classroom environment. And with that comes the opportunity for observations, for opportunity for trial and error, to really get to know those pupils on a much deeper level and be able to try and test those strategies in a supportive way. But I recognise that for mainstream colleagues who have 30 plus children a class, who teach multiple classrooms in large mainstream schools, it's very, very challenging. So what do we need? Well, I would argue that smaller class sizes is going to be something that we always argue we need, whatever a, a student presents with. We also need a higher ratio of staff. I could sit here and talk about the teacher retention crisis, the current um, struggles schools are having to employ TAs. But I think we're all aware of that. But we know that as an co education community, we do need smaller classrooms. We do need higher ratios of staff. We do also need that specific CPD on all those different areas that are encompassed within the neurodivergent community because it's having that specific information that makes all the difference. Now, as I said, I've got a range of pupils within my within the cohorts that I teach, and I often spend a lot of time looking and tracking those signs, those behaviours, those triggers. Mainstream colleagues, I would urge you to do the same if and when you can. I, like everybody else, am aware of teacher workload, and it is really difficult when you've got multiple classes. But understanding those triggers, understanding those nuanced signs that maybe differ particularly between boys and girls is vital. It's vital not only in understanding the strategies that work for students, but also in gathering that evidence to make a strong EHCP application. But is there enough training? on neurodiversity would you feel confident in in tracking those behaviors in tracking those triggers in looking for those signs i would love to hear from you today so if you're able to please you know dm me or request to speak i would love to hear from you particularly if you're an ect or trainee do you think your course gives you enough opportunity to explore send in general are there enough opportunities for you to work with neurodiverse specialists to get that solid foundational knowledge to understand what you're looking for and how to best support different learners? In mainstreams and in alternative provisions, is enough time given to classroom setup? 
is there enough consideration of how to create a classroom, an inclusive classroom on how to gather, to gather that effective supporting evidence? And what about within the curriculum itself? I think all of us listening will understand and acknowledge the overcrowding and demand heavy curriculum, both in primary and secondary. How flexible can mainstreams really be? Is it possible to adhere to every learner's needs, individual needs? Or do we just need to look at best practice? There have been huge changes in the classroom that even I acknowledge in the last 10 years. And there is lots of good practice taking place and lots of opportunities to support neurodiverse needs. I think the increase of brain breaks has been huge and strategies across the board, such as visual timetables and social stories, sensory calming displays, fidget and sensory toys have all played a huge part. I know that in lots of mainstream schools, having that, stru that structured routine, the additional employment of one-to-ones, um, specific timers, individual work working environments and learning desks have worked really well. Many schools work closely with parents and carers, and this is also a really important key aspect, making sure that you're working in a holistic way in supporting those young people. For me, I would say that that's the key element. I think we've made lots and lots of progress, but one of the most important ones for me is that parental engagement, having those meetings, talking about what works at home, what parents and carers have found works in terms of strategies, having that united approach to be able to trial things at school and continue them at home so that there's that consistency. That said, it's not always easy when you're in a mainstream school. As I mentioned, statistics show there's at least one neurodiverse pupil in each class. But let's be honest, we know there's a lot more. And with that, having continuous parental meetings, having to trial different opportunities and different strategies can increase workloads. And then that brings into play neurodiverse staff. If demand of workload is too much, what impact does that have on our neurodiverse colleagues? What strategies are we putting in place to support them? Other tips that I've found that work really well for both um, staff and students is all around preparation. Um, I conference quite a lot with um, with some of our neurodiverse staff in my own provision when I mentioned about um, about creating the show and also with some of our older learners. And I asked them what worked best for them. Um, the big one that came up across the board was demand avoidant practice. Now, I think that that can be done in a really beneficial way across the board, whether you're in mainstream or whether you're in alternative or specialist provision, because it's not about um, overwhelming with choice. It's just about giving options. It's about using perhaps modified language. For example, could you instead of do that? Or I'm going to, would you be able to help? Just removing that demand because with those demands comes anxiety. And then that anxiety can manifest in different ways. Some colleagues said to me that it makes them feel, the anxiety makes them go very quiet. Almost too quiet to the point where some people misinterpret that as being negative 
that they're 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 being ignorant or rude, which is absolutely not the case. It's that demand that's been put on them immediately causes such a high level of anxiety. A coping strategy is to go quiet and to go quite insular. For some of our students, they said that when they feel demands are put too much on them, their way to communicate that is th- is through frustration and behaviour. So sometimes implementing that demand avoidant practice within the classroom can be really useful. Another um, strategy that I think has worked well, again, for both colleagues and for students is about that almost that preemptive learning. So offering opportunities to know what's coming. Now, obviously, you can argue that comes through a visual timetable. But for older learners, one of the things that I found works really well is to talk to them beforehand about what the next lesson will be. And that might be at the end of the of the lesson itself, or it might be a different opportunity before the next lesson. So, for example, if I te- teach that pupil on a Tuesday for PSHE, for example, then on the following Monday, I'll um, speak to that pupil first and just give them a little heads up on what's coming. And that's been a really useful strategy that um, has had really positive feedback from students and from staff. Um, Also, giving opportunity for time after a transition. I understand for mainstream staff, it's really difficult when you have... um, to cram in so much of a curriculum and you've got 30 plus students waiting to start a lesson and a pupil might need a couple of minutes regulation time after they've transitioned into the classroom it is difficult and I'm mindful that not all of these strategies will work for everyone but if there is opportunities for that student to have a couple of minutes to just regulate before the lesson starts whether that's in or out of the classroom the feedback I've had is that that's really important and can often lead then to a really positive learning experience for the rest of the lesson. Um, As I've mentioned before today, obviously, I've got some incredible guests coming on, and and I could sit here and I could tell you all the different strategies that I use and and, and my opinions on neurodiversity, and and I hope to to share that with you across the show. Um, But I think it, it would be remiss of me to not introduce the two guests that I have today. Um, both of whom have got an absolute wealth of experience of neurodiversity and of neurodiverse children and adults. Um, I've got Sally Gordon with me today, who's a teaching assistant with over 10 years of experience, and Joe Galebraith, who runs a charitable organisation supporting neurodiverse children and their families. Um, And I think for me, their impact and their feedback is going to be incredible to this show because we're hearing from from people who've got that experience. Um, so the first person I'd like to introduce today um, is the incredible Sally Gordon. Sally, hopefully you are there and, and can, can join in the conversation today. How are you, Sally? I'm fine, thank you. Can yes, you hear me? Yes, can. That's absolutely brilliant. Thank Sally, thank you so much for joining me today. As I said, I mean, I could witter on today about my views on neurodiverse learners and and neurodiversity as a a collective and how we best support um, young people and families and colleagues. But actually, um, I think we need to hear from from people who've got more of that first-hand experience. So um, I just wondered if you could tell our listeners a little bit about your background in education. Yeah, um... I didn't go into education until my son got type 1 diabetes um, like 10 years ago and he, um, he was 
it came to a like that he was autistic as well. Um, so I've always wanted to do it, but didn't think I was clever enough to go into schools. Um, and then obviously retrained. And then I got my first job in a severe complex needs school. Um, and from there, it's just taken off for me, really. That's that's absolutely amazing. So obviously within your school experience, you'll probably have had lots of interaction and, and offered lots of support to, to neurodiverse pupils and families. I suppose my, my first question, question is, um, what do you think, how do you think we can best support if we start with pupils first what what best support do you think we can offer to pupils how do we best support our, our neurodiverse learners our neurodiverse students what do you think is the best best support we can offer it's it's hard for me to say that because i've only ever worked in as i say severe complex needs school and then um alternative provision um and they do an absolutely amazing job purely because and again it's due to funding class sizes everything like that we've got all these set up there to do it my experience of mainstream schools for myself because i'm like 43 so obviously i would say i'm an eight well i'm an 80s baby growing up um and then with my own children is i think it's potluck what school you get what funding mm-hmm. there is things like that um so i think mainstream do the best they can with what they got yeah. um and i think it's really difficult for mainstreams at the moment I, I'd massively agree with that. I think there's so many challenges, isn't there, around, you know, as I said, I, you know, I work in alternative provision. I have the luxury of being with with um, with with my learners, with the pupils on a really um, sm- small, intimate level where you are watching behaviours and signs of triggers and you're seeing behaviours that um, are, are in patterns. And so you can observe all that. You can note it. You can then trial different strategies and see what works and what doesn't. And also we've got a really high level of, neuro- of, an, of neurodiverse learners within the provision. So, um, I think with anything, you become really uh, attuned to looking out for triggers and signs and, and patterns of behaviour really quickly. Whereas if if you haven't got that experience, it can be it can be quite daunting. And, you know, and for Senkos, there's only one of them in huge schools and there's yes. not always a team. So being able to come and observe a pupil and, and look at different strategies and, and, and work closely with the parents and with the pupils can be really difficult because there's so many pupils that need your time and support. Um, I think one of the things that, that I found um, interesting recently, obviously when I was doing the research from this, but also from my own experience, is the rise in girls and women being diagnosed what what have you got any experience of that yourself yeah so obviously when I was growing up um I was um more introvert so I was always the one that sat at the back of the class didn't really pay attention because nothing sank in for me I thought it was stupid so obviously all through my life um thought it was stupid and I wasn't good enough at education um so I didn't really go down that route um and then obviously I came out of came out of I got some GCSEs came out of school, um, and then I ended up working. And then it wasn't until I was obviously a lot later on in life that I thought actually I can give this a go, and surprise myself. Girls are amazing at masking. Mm-hmm. Now because of this at the moment, um, a lot and I'm not again I'm not I have to choose my words correctly here because I'm not being nasty to some people. A lot of professionals will not recognize girls because they're not jumping off the walls 
they're not fidgeting we're very introvert so all our hyperactivity is internal um and it was only since i got my diagnosis myself um and it was a relief actually because to tell you the truth i had to fight for it and i knew i knew i had it and i had to fight to get it i had 10 years of mental health um and the doctors unfortunately some again i have to choose my words carefully over this some not all some professionals will be like especially with women and this is true because i've read up about it and researched it they'll say they'll go down the route of it's anxiety first it's depression it's this it's that and i understand they have to do that route first because obviously they can't just slap a label on someone and say that's it or for me when i went to the doctor my doc one of the doctors said at 43 do you just want a label and it wasn't anything to do with just having a label i just wanted to understand myself mm-hmm. so it's about understanding and once you understand yourself and you know your triggers you can put so much in place so at the moment i am suffering like everybody else trying to get hold of my tablets because they did come back in and then they've gone so i'm struggling to get hold of my tablets as well um and sometimes i have to wait you know a good few weeks before they come back into stock so i have to know my triggers and i know when to ease off with things myself so if i didn't have that understanding of myself i'd be horrific i'd be awful i think that's really interesting because obviously quite a lot of what you've said there applies to colleagues well to staff and colleagues and also pupils and students in the sense of i'm presuming for your tablets you're you're talking about adhd aren't you and is that the medication that you take to support with 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 those um with those triggers and symptoms of your ADHD I think that's I know that's common across the board and that's one of the things when I decided to do the show and people reached out said that's one of the the frustrating things as well is that for 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 teachers and and educational staff they can see for their pupils who have got a diagnosis who have got that medication who who want that medication and need it that they're seeing an increase in challenging behaviors because of this um because of because of this depletion because of this kind of reduced stock of and this kind of across the boards it is um, yeah of course it is but there's so much we can do to support pupils and like i get so much support in the um in the alternative provision that i work in so if i've unfortunately not had my tablets i will go and tell my manager um, and i'll tell the teacher that i work with um, and I'm really honest and open with the pupils as well, mm-hmm. um, just so they know that I understand them and we can work together to to help each other. I do think that's one of the things, isn't it, that's really important to do with, with any neurodiverse learner is to create that open culture where we 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 talk about about neurodiversity with, with positivity but with that inclusivity that this is it's it's not so it does, it's not a stigma it's not something to be scared of it's not something to, that's negative it's this is this is the way I learn this is this is what the way I, I function this is my, the way my brain it's works funny and you should say that because it's so it's so funny because since I got diagnosed and I'm really honest and open with people now about it yeah. and that's that's not because I want an excuses about myself because I do not make excuses for myself um I have to learn how to behave I have to like before I was so tempted to interrupt but I thought no I've got to let that person finish speaking beforehand um so it's little things like this that we can learn um so for me since I've become on Snowpen I started a um a little workshop with um a small group of um 
girl, well, when I say girls, young ladies, um, teenagers about it. And they were so like, it's so nice because now we understand why we do these things. And then since I've been really on, like open about it, I've actually had adults from professions coming up to me, asking me how I got diagnosed. So I think as soon as you open up to people, it's amazing how many people you've got coming to you. I've even had friends saying they think their partners are. How do they, you know, it just it just opens the door to to a lot more things. And self-understanding, isn't it? And I think a diagnosis for, for adults and for children is really important. I think, you know, I mentioned before, there's huge waiting lists for pathway and for educational healthcare plans. And that's incredibly frustrating because diagnosis is key and also like you said then it then opens up that line of communication and opens up that line of self-discovery for parents and carers to look at look at what that means for their child and how best to support their child and what strategies could they can trial and what will work and what won't and what also what supports out there and I think for colleagues and for, for educational staff about understanding themselves and then for reasonable adjustments to be made because one of the things that I think, and I would hope, I hope that all schools, and I think that, you know, I'm really passionate about alternative provision, but I'm really supportive of mainstream schools as well. I do think schools are doing their best to put in place reasonable adjustments for pupils. However, do we do that for educational staff? Are we ensuring that our staff have that opportunity as well? Because I thought to myself, well, if I'm sat here saying, and which I have done today, here's, you know, are we, I sometimes preemptively learn, uh, offer learning opportunities for our, our pupils. So I'll go to them and say, this is what you're going to be learning so that they've got time to process it and they know what they're coming into. Do we do that for staff? And some of the staff that I spoke to and some of the colleagues I spoke to who who, who um, have got neurodiverse needs, and I'm talking about different provisions here because I've got friends across the country that that, that have a diagnosis said sometimes they're not given the opportunity to process so deadlines are are deadlines given um with time to complete and additional time if they need to process it first is information given and then is the opportunity to process given is or is it just i'm on the cuff i'm going to grab that person because i need to pass this on and this on etc is support given if they're struggling with anxiety you know unseen tasks you know deadline schools I you know I understand schools are busy and complex and the working day is, is challenging but do you think we give enough time to to neurodiverse colleagues do you think we give them enough support and reasonable adjustments Sally it's really hard to say because where where I work I mean I love it and because the and even right down from sort of like management right the way down to the bottom we support each other so much mm-hmm. and I remember it was the we've just had the Christmas fair and I remember um I won't say the name but the math teacher walked past me and he went you all right you don't like change do you because I was standing away from the Christmas fair and I went no so they because we're such a close-knit group we all know each other so well mm-hmm. so I think having that tight-knit group helps so much now, yeah. if I didn't have that support, even right down from just a teacher passing me in the corridor, would I still be there? I don't know. Do you know what I mean? So I think it comes from the top and it goes all the way right down to the bottom. So it's not just do we put enough in place as in um, are we supporting those people? I think it's it's everything. It's right down to that teacher walking past you. Like that teacher noticed that I wasn't coping well with the Christmas fair and I just stood away. 
do, do you know what I mean? So yeah. I think it it it's everything. It's a whole bag, and it's it's so difficult to to squeeze everything in to such a short time space because you you're teaching all day, and then after that you've got other other duties to do when the kids go home. It's not just as simple as what some people might think. The kids go home, and then that's it. You have a whole other job to do after those children go home. Um, and then it's squeezing it into the day and then you know we have to give the children what they need because they are children but then do we put ourselves on the back burner like we you know like everyone does at home as well so it's it's really difficult to say I couldn't say yeah and I couldn't say no because obviously sorry I was gonna say there's always there's always more you can do isn't there there's always more we can put in place yeah and I think as as, as leadership I'm sat here and I'm listening I'm thinking well do, do is is that not necessarily a team but is there you know as a collective do we do enough because I'm sitting here thinking okay from a pupil point of view are there regular check-ins with those pupils who have no who have neurodiverse needs is there are we trialing things effectively are we recording and evidencing things for EHCPs and for pathway are we building those bonds so that, and creating that open culture for all students so that all students understand neurodiverse needs? And then at the same time, I'm sitting here and thinking, OK, well, how does that look from a staff point of view? And I'm thinking, is there a designated person within school? Is it, for example, the SENCO that neurodiverse staff can go and see if they perhaps work in a large mat or, you know, in a large mainstream so that they've got a check-in person who checks in with them to check things are okay. Is there, like there would be for a pupil, a plan in place for sharing information ahead of time so that there's time to process things? Is additional time giving for things like workload for planning, etc., so that processing and work time um, is in unison with what 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 that what that staff member needs and I'd, I'd be interested to hear from mainstream colleagues but I know my own experience from mainstream I'd have to say probably not I think it would be an up, up to the individual school to put that in place and there may be some schools that are doing that brilliantly but actually is it not something we need across the board where it should be in every school and it's good practice to have it in every school and I, I think maybe that's something I'd like to do a little bit more research into and think about. I mean, I'd be really interested in hearing from from mainstream colleagues. Um, you know, if you, if you, if you, do you have have you had that experience? You know, is there support there for neurodiverse uh, colleagues, or is it, you know, is it an ad hoc kind of? Oh, we'll deal with that if if a if a staff member identifies as neurodiverse. I, I'd be really do interested you know what? To hear. Do you know what, Isn't it like that sort of with with anything like any company shall we say anyone that works with no one really addresses the issue until something happens do they and yeah. then it could have gone too far down the line and then you, you're trying to recuperate further stuff do, do, do you know what I mean yeah. so and then I think as well I mean I know it's it's changing changing tactic a little bit as well but I think even in this country even though you, it's all over the advertisements talk it talk therapy and everything like that and your mental health and everything like that I still and I know ADHD and neurodiverse isn't mental health as such, but I still think people want don't understand it fully unless you've unless you're in it. Um, and two, I still think it's a, a bit of a taboo subject. I really do. I think people are scared to say something. 
This show is brought to you in partnership with John Cat Educational, publishing professional development books and resources to support great teaching and learning in schools around the world. Have you checked out their latest releases? Use the code JCTTR2324 for 20% off your order. Don't miss out. Visit johncatbookshop.com to explore their full range of titles and advance your own professional development today. Happy reading. I, I, I'd agree with that. And I think there's the, 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 it, it's, it's difficult, isn't it? Because what you want is you, you, you really want people to feel included and, and feel open and create that open dialogue. But if there is still a stigma there and, and there, there is there is still worry about it being recognised and about uh, how people might respond to it, then there's that barrier there, isn't there? And that's, you know, that that's really challenging. I mean, Paul Paul sent a tweet in and, and you know, I think it, it sums it up beautifully. And he says, I imagine the level of understanding is the first important step. In mainstream, there are still many professionals who are sceptical of ADHD and neurodiverse needs. If this is the case, it's much harder to be given that support. And it kind of, sums that up really isn't it is because not not every not everyone has got experience of neurodiverse needs and and you know what though and a lot of a lot of people as well which when I was speaking to the um the I always say young ladies to give them do you know what I mean because they are teenagers so they're not kids are they the girls that I was speaking to in my school I was like do you do you realize our, our brains are actually made differently it's the you know the um the and I was going through all the science bits of it all and they didn't know that. And I think just starting at the bottom and waking up, they were like, oh, right, so we're like that because this is... And I was like, yes. I was like, this isn't just something that's just, you know, we were made, our brains are actually made differently. And I think just starting there is is a massive point. And, you know, like my my son, he's a mainstream, he's autistic, um, but and he's he's coped absolutely amazingly. But I do still think there are teachers out there that don't fully understand it. But then at the same time, half me goes, why should they fully understand it if they haven't got it? If that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, I understand that. And, you know, I, you know, I take on board that point. I think for me as a, as a teacher, I think it's really hard because we want to be experts in everything and we can't. Workload, subject knowledge, every, it, it, it's impossible for us to be experts on everything but I feel that um, in SEND and alternative provision you do get a lot more CPD and opportunities to to experience um, neurodiverse needs and SEND needs than, than, than you do in mainstream and I've talked about this in other shows that I think moving forward with education I do think there needs to be more opportunities for mainstream staff and alternative provisions and, and specialist provisions to work to work more collaboratively because there's a wealth of knowledge and experience out there because no two children present the same but there are often similar characteristics and, and if you can spot them early enough you can put strategies in but if you've not had no experience of that you, with the teacher workload you don't always have time to go away and no definitely and I, do you know what I, I really do and I'm really when I say patience, I mean, I always like to, that's the wrong word to use. Um, I work very closely with my kids' schools so because I like to have that parent contract so they, they know what's going on at home and I know what's going on in school and to build a, a good bond between them. Um, I can't remember what I was going to say now. Is it about, we were, obviously we were saying about 
not always having that experience and that 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 CPG. Oh, and that's what I was going to say. Sorry. <laughs> See, I've had no, I've had no tablets. I forget what I'm going to say. Um, <laughs> um, that's what I was going to say. I feel. And I always say this, that I couldn't work in mainstream because I'd get frustrated, being too, totally honest. Not frustrated with the children, just frustrated. And again, it's going that above and beyond as in government because, again, it's the same and the same for all of us. They slap something on, like, education-wise and say every child should, should have to learn and do this, which is fair enough. But you've got kids that might not be able to do that. And then that's where the kids start to feel that they like like me that they're stupid and they can't do it and then it's like what you said before you haven't got the funding and the the teachers and the TAs in there to support the children to help them learn in a different way so you know it's 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 a massive thing from the top and it goes all the way right down to the bottom it's and you know luckily enough for my my two kids I'm always like no you're not stupid you you just learn things in a different way right we have to learn to do things in a different way so I always think that they've they've not as it lucky within me god god love them but i'm that parent that understands so i'll just go okay we'll just do things in a different way that a parent of a child with a with the adhd or autism or dyslexia even they might not understand so they they might be like god my kids like why why are they playing up why are they doing this and then chastising the child for something that actually can't be helped so it's it's just a horrible vicious circle i think at the moment that will for, for as long as I know that we're in I agree I think I think it is really frustrating that you know that we've just got this overcrowded curriculum where we can't and you know and we're not we, we, we have like an inflexibility within the curriculum that we didn't used to have where we we can't diversify things as much as we want to and we can't personalize things as much as we want to and workload and Ofsted and all the other things kind of mount up and then you've got from a CPD point of view, like we said, you you know you haven't got time to go away and do your own research, but you're only you might only be getting basic CPD. And I do think some areas of neurodiversity we've made quite good leaps in. For example, dyslexia. You know, at, we've seen such such a positive change of of recognizing those dyslexic traits and and getting children diagnosed quicker. And you know, lots of schools are now investing in their own. Um, in their in their own staff and training them up to to be able to um, diagnose with dyslexia and that's really positive and and lots of schools are also employing you know educational psychologists etc and that's great I mean it's obviously a, a cost of the school but that's brilliant to see and yet there's with other aspects of neurodiversity for example ADHD in girls we're only really scratching the surface at the moment and we're you know I know for working on alternative provision we've seen a huge rise in girls accessing young girls accessing alternative provision um in 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 secondary because they've been able to mask in primary and, and, and navigate in primary and then the transition up to secondary has been incredibly challenging and then there's been a, a complete change in behavior and obviously from from a mainstream point of view and to be supportive to mainstream colleagues that's incredibly difficult to manage in huge classes with the constraints of that classroom environment and then they end up accessing alternative provision because actually they don't understand themselves they they're they're the the neurodiverse kind of behaviors it's- manifest in different ways yeah, and it's just funny you should say that about manifesting in different ways. A lot of people don't don't realise this with ADHD. Is mm-hmm. it might come out? They might think that um, that some. I'm not. 
I'm just saying some, again, I've got to choose my words carefully. Um, some of these girls might become very sexually active at a very young age and um, violence, and it's not violence through frustration. It's the, um, I can never say it properly, the good hormone in your brain that releases the di dopamine yes that's it so we lack dopamine and we are seeking constantly to get that hit of dopamine so again a lot of people don't understand that so they just think if it's a it's a it's either hyperactivity they're not concentrating or anything like that there is so much more to this than than what people actually think and it's not that we're being naughty or say for me, I used to daydream um, and it wasn't anything to do with that. We are seeking constantly dopamine and a lot of people don't don't understand it until you actually start researching it or live through it yourself. Do, do you think then that there needs to be more more specific CPD and training in, in schools so that staff are more aware and can look out for those signs and triggers earlier? So, so for... Again, because obviously I'm obviously um lady, female, sorry. Um, for boys, I'm going to say in men, it's so much more physical. You, you probably could spot a, a man, you know, 99% of the time. Oh, God, they've got ADHD. For females, it is so different. They will look for things for perfection. They think they've got OCD. They haven't. It's because our brains are taking over that much. We'll start to do OCD things, but they haven't actually got OCD. Um, things like sex, your sexuality um, they could actually start taking drinking drugs at such a young age and it's not because the it's peer pressure it's because of the seeking the dopamine to get that hit so regarding the the ADHD for females yes there needs to be a massive massive training package around it because um, I don't think it's there and a lot of people still don't understand what we do and why we do it yeah, and it's only by understanding what the what and the why that we can not only just get the support and get the strategies right, but also create that open culture. Because I imagine, you know, for our for neurodiverse colleagues, like you said, once you, I'm thinking of staff as well as students, but for anyone really, once you understand that, once you've got that understanding, that openness, it helps you to, like you said, to find your own strategies that work, to find those self-soothing things that, that, that help regulate you so that so that you you can function so that you can be so it can be inclusive so you can be part of everything and I think it's you know it's you, little things like people yeah. might not even think of walking down a corridor so a lot of the time I'll lean against the wall um when I'm standing or I'm starting to sway now people might physically notice that on me and go yeah. oh yeah they, there's the ADHD coming out of it but what people might not understand is um, I'll never forget this day. My old boss asked me to, the corridors were really busy, asked me to um, log a pupil in because he turns up late. I went, yeah, okay, no worries. The pupil stands in front of me. Couldn't remember the pupil's name. And I literally in my head saw the pupil's name travel down the corridor with my manager around the corner. And it was just, I know that sounds really bizarre to say it, but that's how I remember things. Yeah. Um, and shapes as well and people don't understand these things about you know about neurodiversity or or things like that I've got a colleague who really mad she's got ADHD but apparently it's a thing she can taste colour so we tell our pupils this and they're like oh I'm like that and it's brilliant because then we start an open conversation with the pupils and they love it because we're all the same then and they absolutely love it so then 
we big them up and we're like you can do anything in life don't let anything stop you um and this is the me- this is like not a message but this is what i want especially females to understand is just because you're neurodiverse does not mean that it will stop you in life that's amazing it's and it's so true isn't it and i think it's it is through that open culture that you can get the best support in place. And I think, you know, it, it's even sat here talking today, it's made me think about how often do we, so, you know, there's neurodiversity week that gets celebrated once a year and, you know, we, we'll put reasonable adjustments in or we'll put support for, for pupils in place. And I would hope that schools would do the same for staff if staff feel comfortable sharing a diagnosis or if they're going through a diagnosis process, but actually, do we create an open culture for all students to understand and all staff to understand neurodiversity? So then it can not only be celebrated, but it's also allowing you to understand why things happen, yeah, why I that think, happens, why, you know. I, I think personally it's a lot better from when I was growing up, obviously, because it was still, you know, I, re- I remember my, my nephew's in his 30s now of because me my sister's a lot older than me, but I remember he was diagnosed with ADHD when he was a lot younger. And I remember the doctor saying to him, stop feeding him bananas. And this was in the 90s. So you think back how far we've actually come from stop feeding your kid bananas because they've got ADHD to now, you know, we've come on leaps and bounds. But I do still think there's there's not enough to be done. But then obviously that's where we evolve and we we, try, and we keep pushing and pushing and pushing and pushing um you know and just try our best that's all we can do keep trying our best what what do you wish your teachers because I'm thinking you know there'll be lots of teachers and education staff listening to this and and reflecting on yourself as 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 someone who has got um ADHD but also thinking about the kids you work with who are neurodiverse what do you wish that your teachers had known about you do you know what funny you should say that because I was actually speaking to a colleague the other day and we were having the same conversation um and you the again choose me words properly and I don't mean to offend anyone by saying things the kids that play up mess around cause the most disruption they're the, te- they're the people that get the attention the kids that sit quietly at the back don't really cause much bother don't get the attention because they're being good aren't they and looking back now it's those ones that you have to keep an eye on because they're the ones that'll slip through the net. It's and but I think it's the same in society, isn't it? With everything, the ones that shout the loudest get all the attention, and the ones that just sit quietly at the back and don't do anything don't get the attention. So, you know, and I wish, I wish looking back now, the teachers had realised that I wasn't stupid. It was just I needed to learn it in a different way and at my own pace. But unfortunately, the way the curriculum is, and I know from mainstream speaking. You've got, to, you've got that timetable and you've got to stick to that timetable. And again, if it doesn't get done, you've got, you know, people coming in, offsteads, everything like that. Well, why hasn't that been done? Why isn't this marked a certain way? Why isn't that to the And unfortunately, again, it's just not always about that. You know what I mean? We're all individuals and, you know, I wish I wish things were different. But, yeah. no, I don't, you know, there's loads of things that I could suggest. But at the end of the day, I'm just one one small person in a in an alternative provision with ADHD giving advice to people do you know what I mean I'm not sitting in government with you're a load not. of laws around me so you're not and you're right and we can't change everything but we can check we can we can offer advice and support so if you 
if if you were going to offer some tips and this is from your experience as as an educator because you work in education but also someone has ADHD what would your top tips what would you suggest to perhaps say for example teachers who haven't got as much experience of particularly girls with ADHD or, or particularly neurodiverse learners as a whole what would you what top tips would you offer them what would you say right what can they what can they focus on to try and create a more inclusive classroom to try and support those learners yeah so for example one of mine would be a quiet room um you should say that i've just literally thought don't shout (laughs) okay great um the other thing is don't put too much information in front of that person in one go Mm. so even if you put say if you've got two questions that need to be done and that person can only sorry rearrange sorry start again say if you've got to get through a lesson right and there's only that person can only physically do those two questions just let them do the two questions because even doing those two questions might be absolutely massive to that person yeah um and the other top tips are as well is girls with a lot of girls with adhd have this thing about perfectionism mm. so they'll want to be perfect, like look and um, like immaculate to mask stuff so um especially in the in the alternative review i work in the they're obsessed with i think like all kids though the hair the makeup and they come in and they look immaculate and i'm like where do you get the time to do all this in the morning but it's actually part of what it's like making us feel normal if you're allowed to use that word anymore do you know what i mean and the other thing is we have got a lot of anxiety because we want everything to be perfect because we know it's not perfect if that makes sense um, and in our brains, we live in chaos constantly. So you might come into, say for me, I go to work every day, I come home, da, 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 da. one thing could knock me off my little routine. So it's just about understanding that, you know, one thing might have knocked that person off that morning. And mm-hmm. you might, you know, just, it's probably more about understanding, but I I would like more more when you say workshop presentations whatever you'd like to call them about girls with with adhd and how we present and how we function and things like that yeah i think that i mean well it's invaluable isn't it and especially from yourself when you have got adhd and have been through that experience of being at school of 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 of, of getting a diagnosis and how it's helped you i do think it's really important i mean i think you know it's always going to be hard for mainstream colleagues as i said before i think of course it is yeah you know but i think have you know if you if we're spotting girls or boys with with traits that we think might fall under that neurodiverse umbrella about ensuring that their key worker is checking in with them at all times trying to track and record those behaviors having those really in-depth meetings with parents so that you can share information, share strategies, share things that work and don't work, but then also gather that information and then getting that EHCP and and are in in place ASAP and if parents and carers and pupil or student are are wishing get get that pathway started so that then if there is a diagnosis there it then opens up that language of okay well this is this is this is what I present with here's my diagnosis now let's learn what that means how I can manage it what strategies I can put in place so I can be successful and whether that's in mainstream or alternative provision 
I think that's really important because sometimes, and I see it in mainstream colleagues, and I'm aware, you know, I've done, listen, I've done shows on behaviour. I know how challenging behaviour can impact staff and can impact a mainstream classroom. It can impact an alternative provision classroom. But it's about recognising that that behaviour it isn't always the defiance that you think it is. It can be, particularly now as we move forward with recognising things like pathological demand avoidance, which falls under the autism umbrella, about recognising that sometimes what we might see as as defiant or challenging behaviour is actually a behaviour that is a direct, directly because of actually what's going on underneath the surface, which is high levels of anxiety, which may be neurodiversity. So it's about, and and that has to come from CPD as well, doesn't it? Because we have to be able to recognise that. So for me... Well, yeah, because it's, it's even like down to things like lights. Do you know what I mean? It might just be that the lights in a certain classroom are too bright. Or a triggering. Um, you, you know, or the seating plan or... um. You know, it could be that little little tiny things that the perfume or the aftershave that the teacher's wearing just sets them off. So I think it's it's teeny tiny little things like this that can set people off and they don't realise it. So I guess it's about having that consideration and using, you know, if you can, CPD, etc., to learn more about that. Because that's not something I would have ever considered, Sally, was around smells. But actually, massive. It, it, it's, it's funny because... Yeah, we're massive. And we so the teacher that I work with, we um we're very aware of things, smells, like sometimes the kids in our classes, most of the time they sit there and they're like, Can we have the lights off? And we go, Yeah, and we pull the blinds up. Um and it's because they don't like the lights on. Um smells. Um I guess if that smell puts you on high alert as a learner, mm-hmm. then you're already in a state of anxiety and fight yeah. or flight before the learning even starts, which means you're not regulated enough to process the information. No, it's, it's little things like, I know this again, my son, um, most kids, I know it's like, again, tiny little thing, most kids, when they get a bit of dog dirt on the, on the shoe, don't they? They go to the nearest puddle, wipe it off and crack on going to school. He phoned me and went, I've got to go home. And I was like, yeah, go home, wash it and get back to school. I phoned the school. The school might think I'm mad for doing that, but I know he will have to go home. He will have to clean his shoe to an inch of its life because he can't bear the smell of it because he'll balk and then he can go back to school. So for me, I'm just like, do you know what? He's gone home. He's done what he needs to do. He's gone back to school. That's enough for me. But some teachers might be like, well, no, he needs to get into school. But they don't realise little things like this. So they don't realise... Yeah, they don't realise, again, and I'm not saying it's all teachers, but and I know everyone has a job to do, but they might not realise that they've they've had a route for the parents just to get that child to school in the morning is massive. Yeah. So, you know, for me, the fact that my child goes to school every near enough every single day unless he's sick, then I'm made up with him. You know, and then he's staying to school, he's doing his lessons now and again, he has a wobble. I am chuffed to bits. And I will keep pushing and pushing and pushing them. So I think it's just about having that understanding of things. And and I guess the understanding that certain experiences that have happened before school or may happen during school mm-hmm. may to us seem insignificant, but to a neurodiverse learner or even a neurodiverse staff member might have implications that mean that come the next lesson come later on the day when they've processed it you'll see behaviors that are unexplainable that you're not quite sure why it's happened but actually are a direct result of something that's happened earlier you know what yeah it's it's silly little things like this so take for instance um 
I'm just, this is coming from an adult point of view here. Mm-hmm. Um, we've got no driveways where I live. So just say we're all dead. We're dead good. And we've all, you know, you morally you'd park outside your own house and everything like that. Well, a good few times I couldn't park outside my house. Doesn't usually bother me because I'm like, you know what? We all pay our tax, whatever. Someone else will park there. Fine. Something has happened that day and it had knocked me a little bit because my routine was a little bit off. I come home that night and I sobbed because I couldn't park outside my own house. And it was coming up to Christmas, which I'm not particularly great around Christmas anyway, because it's all changed, different Mm -hmm. smells, all the flashing lights are on, everyone's, you know, different routine in school. Um, And I cried because I couldn't park outside my own house. So luckily enough, my family know me and they're fine. But if I'd just told somebody else that, they'd be like, what are you crying for? Because you can't park outside your own house. But it wasn't just that. It was a combination of things. So it's just having that little bit of, you know, waiting to go, actually, there might be something tiny that's happened, but it's a knock-on effect from something else. So what advice would you give to neurodiverse staff then? Staff that are maybe in the process of getting diagnosed or that have a diagnosis, what what would you say to, what what top tips would you have for them? Would, would you say that, you know, really communication and, and going and seeing your line manager and your your, your senior leadership team is, is you know key. what it, it depends if you've got that relationship with them where where I work everyone's well I presume everyone is we, we you know my head teacher's door is always open I know I can go and speak to her whenever I want um I know I've got staff members there that I can speak to whenever I want there's no one there to judge so it's a really open open door policy in school but I understand that some people haven't do you know what I'd do is just find the, the teacher that or the you know your colleague that you can talk to and just talk to them and use them. And recognising that actual actually sometimes burnout will happen. I mean, teacher workload is is horrendous anyway. And you know, I don't think there's any listener that would argue otherwise. But I think sometimes recognising that burnout is because your brain is also processing so much from the day that actually sometimes rest. And, and asking if you can, because it is difficult, it's everyone's personal journey, but asking for reasonable adjustments if you think you need them, like that little bit extra processing time, like that extension on a deadline, if if you can. Because yes. burnout's a real thing for teachers as it is, but never mind when you've got neurodiverse needs and you're processing so much more about the world. You, you. Especially pe- people with ADHD will want to, they, they won't really say no, and they, they take on everything because they don't want to say no. So you have to learn to say no, which is what I've had to learn to do in these past couple of years. So um, I've texted my mum on a few occasions and gone, I can't come down today, I need to stay in. And she knows, all right, love, don't worry about it. And she texts us back and goes, don't worry, pet, love you lots, I'll see you soon. I'm there the next day. But it's just because for that day, I need to stay in because I just can't physically and mentally just go out and communicate with the world. So times giving yourself breaks then giving yourself a point of view maybe maybe asking for somewhere quiet like a a quiet room for your ppa advanced notice of changes or requests time to process their practical strategies that that not only could be asked for but actually from a leadership point of view if you know you've got neurodiverse colleagues and staff maybe it's about having that conversation and and doing it in a private and supportive way i do i do think what what, sorry, I do think what you said before, having that key worker. So if you've got a person in school that like, you can go to and, and talk about things and for that person to understand yeah. um, and it's confidential, even if it's just to have a little moment for five minutes, um, but having that bit of time and then, or even if you, 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 you are struggling a little bit with something, you can go to that person and you can talk it through because 
you might get that person might have a different way of doing it. You might go, oh God, yeah, if I just do that and that, then that'll help. Yeah. And I think regular check-ins, and I don't mean just bobbing your head through the door, is everyone okay? I mean, literally having that check-in. But again, I know myself, it is so difficult to get that time because you literally don't have any time to do anything anymore. Yeah, it is. I mean, you know, I think our workload for, for all education staff is just massive. But actually, we need to make time because because as statistics show, you know, we've got, there's been, um uh, there was a really interesting study that said in the last three years, there's been a 400% rise in women over the age of 18 seeking a diagnosis for neurodiversity my god adhd so we are we are seeing a rise in adults recognizing um behaviors within themselves triggers etc and so actually as busy as we are for good practice and just to support each other we need to make that time and if we create that open dialogue and we do it in a sensitive way, then I, I, I think that that helps our colleagues as well, doesn't it? Because, you know... Do you know what? I, yeah, I think I'm one of the lucky ones. You know, I mean, I know I know it always pipes back to where... Because, you know, at the end of the day, we spend more time at work than we do at home. That's just the way it is. You know, I think I'm one of the lucky ones about where where I work. Um, and my family, because um, my family absolutely completely understand me, because obviously we, we do have... ADHD and autism that run in our family so we are a very understanding family in that sense and my friends are as well um but then I think to myself sometimes I've chose me friends because they are understanding of me so you know it's it's one of those things um but I do know there's people out there that feel alone or they feel and I always come back to saying you feel stupid but I think we do neurodiverse people sometimes feel like we are because we don't fit in or we don't get understood or we have to learn in a different way um but we're not we're not stupid it's just our brains work a little bit differently and we just you know take that little bit time to come around but um i think with support and finding the right people to talk to and having that understanding we fly we absolutely fly i love that and i think as well like you said it's about it's about creating that open culture where people can feel like they can talk about things and i think you know it we need to get we need to get better at creating that open culture across schools as a general around neurodiversity so that if people are recognizing traits or within themselves that, that, that then you know like you said there are lots of adults that don't know about how to get support about making sure that schools were signposting colleagues to agencies charities etc that can offer that support as well because really reaching out and talking about it is the only way you you get the support that you you not only need but that you 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 rightly deserve because actually we should be inclusive of everyone shouldn't we um you know what though it it very right down to the doctors as well and again i think it depends on what what your doctor says do you know what i mean like i'm i'm a very i can be very strong-minded when i want to be Mm. um and i'd for me when i got diagnosed you know i'd had 10 years of back and forth to the doctors all the time and in the end i'd had enough um so I was very strong-minded in that sense. But if you've got someone that's doubting themselves a little bit, you know, again, it's 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 everything. It's it's so difficult to get that diagnosis because your doctor might go, oh, actually, no, you're not. and But you are. So it's it's so complicated, the system, and it, it is, and I feel for people. Yeah, no, I do too. And I think that's great advice to be persistent. And also, if you need to, reach out to those agencies and charities and support networks because actually 
if you're feeling low or alone and you're feeling like you can't get the support, they're there to help you to to continue to be persistent so that you get the diagnosis that that, that you want and that you need so that you know then it opens up that opportunity to to get support, to identify triggers, to learn more about how your brain works and what you need to 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 best navigate the world around you. Um, Sally, you've been absolutely incredible. Please say, please, I hope you'll stay on and listen um, because I'm sure yeah. I'll come back to you with lots of questions very, sh- very soon and very shortly. But thank you, Sally, to hear from you directly as somebody who has ADHD, as a woman, as, as an adult. Um, I think you've offered some great tips today for, for, for children, for, for teachers and for, for adults and colleagues. So thank you so, so much, Sally. You're thank very you. welcome. Um, that was Sally Gordon who obviously is a, a teaching assistant with over 10 years experience who does so much work around ADHD particularly in girls it's been absolutely fantastic to have her on today so thank you Sally um, before I introduce my next guest um, I'd just like to say that this show is, in, is brought to you in partnership with John Cap Educational publishing professional development books and resources to support great teaching and learning in schools around the world Have you checked out their latest releases? Use code JCTTR2324 for 20% off your order. Don't miss out. Visit johncatbookshop.com to explore their full range of titles and advance your own professional development today. Happy reading. Wow, guys, like, honestly, I think this has given me so much food for thought as 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 a colleague, as a teacher, but also as leadership of how we we best support colleagues um but how do we support our families and 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 what how do we advocate for them when we're we're so busy as as teachers and educators um well hopefully my next guest will be able to support us with a little bit with that um joe gail braith is the founder of a charitable organization in liverpool that supports neurodiverse children and families um, and hopefully we can get that perspective now from that from that more parent and carer and family point of view. Joe, hopefully, hopefully you're there. I know that you're down under your autism in motion um, Twitter. Uh, hopefully, if you just request to speak, which is if you press the mic button, then hopefully you'll be added on. Um, We've invited her in, but I think because she's on a laptop, she might struggle to call in compared to if she's on a phone. Ah, Joe. Well, hopefully you will be able to uh, join us. Let us know. Do do um do request to speak using that mic if you're on your phone, um, or if you can move over to a smartphone. That would be brilliant. And one of the things I was going to talk to Joe about was how do we best support our families, um, who are perhaps struggling with behaviours at home, who are seeking, um that support or that diagnosis um i've had quite a lot of experience of this within within my time as an educator myself i've had families who uh, you know potentially are at their wits end um because of the because of the um the real length in waiting for a diagnosis or um, for an ehcp Hi everyone, apologies for the little uh, technical error there. Hopefully Joe will be able to join us again in a second. Um, it's always a little bit of a nightmare. Um, you know, sometimes technical things happen, but hopefully she'll be able to join us again in a second. Um, obviously we'll be speaking to Joe about um, her experiences of supporting neurodiverse um, families, parents and carers and children as well. Um, I know from my own experience, as I mentioned before, 
often parents and carers can be at their wits end really worrying about um how to get a diagnosis how long it's going to take um frustrated at the length of time particularly pathway can take at the moment and then even getting an ehcp and then finding the right provision and the right support whether that is remaining in a mainstream um and supporting you know um within a mainstream whether that's a one-to-one -one or additional support or whether that's finding the, the right alternative provision it can be an incredibly difficult task um and an incredibly difficult experience for parents and carers um for their child to get a diagnosis and then to to get that right that right provision in place and that right support and that's no disrespect to mainstream colleagues at all because many um young people children and young people who are diagnosed with um with neurodiverse neurodiversity whether that be adhd asc whether it be dyslexia dyscalculia etc um are really happy with the support and the additional support that can be put in place in a mainstream with um with that diagnosis and with that ehcp um but it can be really difficult and it can be so difficult for parents because for some um they may only have one child that demonstrates neurodiverse behaviors or triggers and so quite often from my experience i've had um parents who said well, well what do i do now what how what what do we do because they've had no experience and this is where people like joe really come into the forefront and really do support joe i'm hoping that you're there again now i apologize for the technical error ah, yeah sorry no i don't know what happened is it me no not your no not your fault <laughs> at all i do apologize so joe you were just saying that you haven't got any real experience of, of from an educational no. point of view no. from working in fields but what's your experience why are you passionate about neurodiversity okay. what's your thoughts and experience so the quickest way of doing it is i'll just dead quickly tell you the story of why okay we came about okay so i i had daniel daniel was um my, my third child and he was such a good boy, um, very quirky, but I didn't really notice that so much when he was little. I just saw that he was just me, my baby, you know, he was my youngest. And then when he got to school, um, he, he, he'd been getting told off and stuff. And I was like, why is he getting told off? He's such a good boy, you know, he's, he, he hates the thought of being sheltered at or, you know, being naughty. Um, and these things that he was that he was getting told off for. I mean, he got sent outside the headmistress's classroom office, sorry, um, for messing around. And I was like, wow, you know, this is not him. And then um, his teacher at the time was the Senko. I think he got a year one and she was the Senko and she called us in for parents day. You know, we'd been having issues on the playground with the other children and and um, you know, saying he had no friends and stuff like this, and, and I'd been asking, and I'd been saying, oh, you know, how, what, you know, is he okay, and and all this sort of stuff, and you know, is there anything that we can do at home? And and then it got to like the, nearly the end of the year, which was quite quite frustrating at the time. And she said, oh, I think he's got ADHD. Can you still hear me? Yeah, just yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so then. Um, I went off and my husband was like, no, no, he hasn't got ADHD because in his mind he was like, you know, what you think of as ADHD, you know, Dan's 17 now. So this is going back a few years ago and we weren't very educators. Um, 
about these these conditions um so we were just like you know he's really clever he, he is really clever and um, we we don't know how he knows the stuff that he knows and we were thinking oh it's just because he's so clever he's bored in the classroom the teacher you know she she doesn't know how to cope with him or whatever this this was what we were saying and um, no, he hasn't got adhd because he doesn't fit the picture of adhd in our minds anyway he goes off to our gp the gp said no but it got my mind working and I started looking into it more and he was doing things like he thought he was a cat. Um, he used to crawl around meowing and um, used to call himself the kitten. And it just ticked all the boxes for what at the time was called Asperger's, um, which is not called that anymore. It's not diagnosed as Asperger's anymore. So um, I then went to the Senko, who at, at the time was, was still Dan's teacher, and I said, look, I, I do think there's something going on. Um, I'm not 100% sure on whether it's ADHD, but I think it could possibly be, be Asperger's, and she agreed with me. Um, and off he goes on the pathway. So, like, two and a half years later, this is how long yeah. it's taken. You know, this kid's still crawling around in the classroom. Um, the school was meeting his needs, I would say, somewhat. They were doing amazing stuff for him and there was lots of support getting put in place. But he was still struggling and he was still really, really anxious and um, things like his sensory needs. So he, he used to play up a little bit in school and the teachers couldn't understand why and I couldn't understand why either. Um, and it was things like... Um, the carpets in the classroom, but I didn't know about this. Sorry, I'm, I'm skipping ahead of myself a little bit. <laughs> Sorry. No, so as fine. a mum, I, I started to research better than better than the FBI, aren't we, when we get going, um, and started learning more about um, all the different things, the different challenges that the kids might face, or adults as well, um, might face, such as like sensory processing difficulties and stuff like that. So I've gone on a course here in Liverpool with an organisation who are sadly no longer running called the Isabella Trust, and they brought in... Um, a lady called Lisa from Shine Therapy. I don't know if you've heard of them. Um, and I did a course around sensory processing for um for, for Dan um and realized quickly that the, the issues that he was having in the classroom were sensory. Now, without me doing that course, I wouldn't have known that, and then I wouldn't have been able to go and speak to the teachers about it. And I, I carried on learning um going on basically every course available. But um, without that knowledge, I don't think that I'd have been able to help him, and I don't think I'd have been able to help the teachers help him. And I think he was in he was in a mainstream at the time, and he carried sorry he carried on Jordan in in mainstream. Um, but I don't think he'd have that, I don't think he'd have stayed without. So really, well, that's what you know. Without without your support and without that kind of real understanding and knowledge i mean obviously absolutely incredible as you as a mom and as a family to take you know to to really kind of em embrace that and and and, and educate yourselves and, and try different things and, and you know and create all those strategies that you know i've obviously over over time really worked and allowed him to successfully learn i mean from a parent point of view Although we are, and we've talked quite a lot with Sally about creating an open culture and about celebrating our diversity, but do you think there is still for quite a lot of parents a bit of a stigma when they're waiting for their child to be diagnosed and, and a worry and a concern about what life will be like if they get diagnosed and what that'll mean for their for their child? Yeah, yeah, I do. But I also think because it's an invisible 
condition, you can't see it. Um, often parents, well, I certainly did, um, think that it's something that they're doing wrong. You get me? Yeah. And then, so, so you go to the doctor or quite often it's, it's the parent picking up on things in, in our experience. Sorry, so that's, yeah. sorry, so going back just a little bit previously to the question, because I've got ADHD as well, so... You can understand, and I'm not medicated. <laughs> you can understand now why the conversation is the way it is. Um, <laughs> so the reason autism motion was started was that along the way, I sort of met other parents and made friends with like-minded people. <clears throat> and we found that a lot of the language used is quite negative very focused on the difficulties and what we wanted to learn more about was okay our children do have difficulties there are challenges but what we want to do is we want to embrace all the great things about it we want to focus on what the interests are and work on work on the difficulties around in a positive way does this make sense now in a positive way so we acknowledge that there are challenges but there are also a lot of positives and there wasn't anything out there at the time to help us to overcome social difficulties you know to help them build friendships um so that's why autism emotion was started so would you would you would you recommend to any parent to reach out to any obviously you know there's different we've got listeners yeah. up and down the country we've got we've got in you know across the globe to be honest so for parents who maybe suspect that their child's got a um, neurodiversity or or you know are in the process of waiting yeah. for a diagnosis or have got a diagnosis would you say that reaching out to organizations charities agencies help groups is a good thing because it allows you to get that support yeah i would say so I, I I would say so, but along the way, I did come across quite. This is going to sound terrible now, but people can be quite competitive. Like my child's got more difficulties than yours, a little bit. So that can present a barrier, yeah. can't it, for parents? Yeah. And I just, but, I you know, I I know for myself, you know, parents that I've worked with closely, it can be, the whole thing can be a yeah. minefield, and it's so it it can it can. It can bring up a lot of anxiety and trauma for parents and carers as yeah, well, can't it? Sorry, Anna, what was the next question that you asked? You asked two questions. So I just know. wanted to, well, I was going to ask you, moving on beautifully, <laughs> actually, I was going to ask you, what do you think schools can do to better support neurodiversity? Okay, so on the note of what I've just said, um, what we find often, uh, well, I think we find as well, it, sorry, is um, when you're going to the schools and you're saying, as a parent, you know, my little Johnny, he's got these difficulties. What can you do to help him? Um, he needs an educational psychologist. He needs an EHCP, if that's relevant. Obviously, it's not always relevant. Um, then often you'll go, well, in my experience, yeah, your little Johnny, but Billy's well worse. You know, <laughs> so I think, I think yeah. about acknowledging individual children um, and the individual challenges and the individual needs because often you know just because you've had a bit of training in autism or ADHD it doesn't mean that you know everything about it and you also don't know about how it presents individually because you know me and Sally we've both got ADHD but we're both very different people and the way it affects Sally and the way it affects me can also be very different you know um, and that goes across the board with our children um, so I think I think learning about 
the child specifically. Um, and the only way they're going to do that is to speak to the parents. Um, of course. And, and that's one of the big top tips I sort of gave at the beginning was that I think as hard as it is, because teachers are busy and they've got really busy yeah. workloads, but parental and carer support and having their yeah. meetings and figuring out what triggers and, and strategies yeah. work and can be mimicked at home and school and what's successful and and saying to to, to parents and carers you know what works for you what what helps or what doesn't work it, it's like a big jigsaw puzzle isn't it it needs to be Absolutely, put together yeah. um i think you know i, I think it, it you know it it really it, it really needs to be like a 360 approach for each child and as hard as that is to do it really is the best way to support each individual learner, Absolutely. isn't it? And I mean, Daniel's got a younger sister, Scarlett. She's my daughter as well. <laughs> Go around the world to say to introduce her into it. But um, so she's very different to Dan. She was um, she had global developmental delay, um, and so was delayed in all areas. Um, and when we got so she's in a mainstream as well um but when we got to school she presents in she's like a step for child in school you know when you were saying before about being perfect that's it yeah um but at home her behavior is very different um and school initially so she was in the, the first school that she was in and they didn't recognize they didn't see her difficulties you know mm. And um, and then, unfortunately, because we lived outside the area, she didn't get a place then in 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 the in the year one, uh, or sorry, in reception. She, we had to move to a different school, and and it just happened that the TA in the reception class was one of the nuns of the children who come to who came to our activities. So we knew her already, um, and she knew Scarlett, and then um. She, the way she was in school and the way she was at home, she knew she could see the bigger picture, if you like. And so because of that, and only, I think, because of that, it meant that Scarlett got the support that she actually needed in, in school rather than them just going on what, what they saw with their own eyes, if you get, you get. Yeah, then it, it's it's so hard because, and Sally said it, I've said it, but, you know, because girls present yeah. so differently and often ask, when they get home, like you said, there can be lots of different behaviours. They can be exhausted because they've had to mask all day. And so then, it, you know, and, and I say this as having been a mainstream teacher, there's a tendency then to think, well, well, it's a, it, it, not that it's a you problem, but that you go, well, well we're not seeing that in school. So it's yeah. parenting, but, but it's not yeah. always. It's just that they've ma managed so well at school to mask everything that at some point the mask has to come off and the safe place to take the mask off and to regulate is at yeah. home and so yeah. that i think it, it's really key like you said that schools and, and and parents and carers work so closely together because because it, it's got to be that joined up approach it hasn't does, it yeah and there's something called the coke yeah. bottle effect it's like a little poem i don't know if you've read it yeah i know which yeah. one you mean i think Absolutely. everybody should read it yeah <laughs> i think yeah. everybody okay. should read it but yeah from um from from our experience um, often parents feel like they've got something to prove that, that people don't believe that their child has these difficulties um, and you know the, the first sort of thing if, if you if you go to cams is they put you on a parent course you know yeah. and they they see I think that needs to be re renamed um from being just like a parent course because that sounds like you 
they think you don't know how to parent. And it's not. It's more about education, isn't it? Of course, absolutely, of course. And and speaking of education, you know, do you think the curriculum and the education as you know an education as it stands, do you think it does support neurodiverse learners or do you think we do, as many of us teachers have said, it, it needs to it needs a reform, like because it's there's so much in the curriculum for them to learn, there's so much to get through in terms of the education system. Do you, what are your thoughts so, on that? It's hard, isn't it? It really is hard. So you've got you've got such a wide range of of chil- children's with needs and abilities right across the spectrum. Yeah. So you've got yeah children with learning disabilities who are autistic, and you've got children and are quite obviously you know are quite obviously affected, and then you've got children who are very very subtle and will mask in school, in and as a as a teacher, you're expected to be able to cater really to such a wide range of needs. I'm not so much the learning disability side as, as much, obviously, in a mainstream setting. But let's look, let's look at a mainstream classroom. You might have a girl in the mainstream classroom who's masculine, who's anxious, who's a perfectionist, who you don't see slip at all. She sits at the back of the class and she keeps her head down and hardly speaks to anybody. And then you might have an ADHD. The girl, I'm saying girl just to be off off a little bit, but um, bouncing off the walls, you know, mouthy and, yeah. and, 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 and struggling to engage. And you're supposed to be able to deal with that and everything in between in, in, in one classroom environment. And my son, my son's very academic and, and always has been. Um, and was in him because he was academic, um, he didn't get a place in it. Well, he, he tried to. He, first of all, he tried to say that he didn't need an education, health and care plan. Um, so I had to fight for that <laughs> to get him the support that he needed in school. Yeah. And then there was a lot because he's got like a spiky profile, so he's he's high in some areas and lower in others, um, like his, his understanding and stuff. And so he needed a one to one really, but the school had to do the graduated approach and prove that they were doing everything they could and the local authority yeah. to get the funding and then and then the funding obviously isn't very much as we know that the, 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 the local authority give and then so Dan didn't really get a one-to-one and I wonder sometimes if he had got a one-to-one what would have happened with his results would he have got better results would he have to be now doing a level two in, in college or would he be sat in in, in sixth form doing his A-levels which was the plan um mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think if if he'd have been in a yeah he's mainstream academically, but he's not really, and and he struggled so much socially and with the sensory environment as well of the classroom, and if he'd have been in a smaller classroom with with less pupils, as as it is in a in a sense setting, um, would how would he have gone on then? And and that makes me wonder. And you see, here in here in Liverpool, there's there's specialist provision for children with learning difficulties or emotional and social behavioural type schools and there's mainstream schools and there's nothing really for those in-betweeners and there's lots of in-betweeners whether they've got ADHD or they've got ASD and we didn't really see this did we when we were in school do you get me we didn't know we didn't really see but I suppose if you look back and you think there probably was kids in your class with with autism or ADHD, but the more 
significant ones would have been, gone to a special school. Yeah, that's such a it's such, such a, a good point, isn't it? Yeah, they have. You're right, and and you know things have changed, and we've developed some awareness. But you're right. There's still, as you you know, as you to use your your quote there, in between is of of where do they go, and yeah. and how best do we support those those vulnerable young people as well? I, I, so, what would your what would your hope for education in the future Look, be? I quite, I quite you... like these um, resource bases that they used to have years ago. They had them when when Dan was in primary. They had resource spaces and they've, they've, they've started to come back now. So it would be uh, a smaller, uh, more specialised provision with trained staff who know what they're doing and the subtleties. You were you were talking before and you were saying about in your class because you're in, in did you say you were in SEN? Are you in the SEN provision? Well, I mean, I'm an, yeah, so alternative yeah. provision, so we have small classes. Yeah, small so you get to know well. the children and you get to know the needs and you can tell. But also, I suppose, like I do when I walk into my house or we go somewhere, you're, you're scanning for any potential triggers or any potential possible triggers <laughs> throughout the day. Yeah. So you know that if you walk, if you do this, little Johnny might be triggered by that so you'll sort of be on guard for that but yeah. in a mainstream school they can't really do that can they because there's 30 kids in the classroom exactly if there were smaller classes within like a like a more specialised setting I think that'd be perfect I think that's such a good point and one that you know I know educators up and down the country are screaming for as well and saying you know we, we, we do need smaller yeah. classes and we need a curriculum that's not as as overcrowded so that we can have a little bit of flexibility yeah. to support the learners who need that rather than the diagnosis it's not always about a diagnosis is it no sometimes it's just like meeting yeah. the need and, and getting that support in place whether whether you're an adult or a child at um i mean joe i'll be honest with you i could sit and talk to you all day you've been such an amazing day guess and it's lovely to hear from a, a parental point of view i mean we've run out of time unfortunately but i'd love to have you on as a guest in the future and 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 deep dive a little bit more into a parent and carer point yeah. of view but to everybody listening today i hope you've been able to take away something from today i hope thank you to massive thanks to joe and understanding from a parent and carer point of view how how, how where the challenges are and about you know the anxieties that families might face and some of the stigmas and how we best support our families also how we best support our, our children and young people when they may be masking or you know not showing typical behaviors that we would expect to not just write that off as 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 behavior and challenge and defiance but actually that it might be a, a need for something underlying an underlying need there and also for our staff i hope that any staff that are maybe looking seeking a diagnosis or need that more support or have just been diagnosed i hope that you find that key person to reach out to but regardless of whether you're a student a staff member or a parent and carer creating this open dialogue this um not just inclusivity and celebratory um approach but also just a general widespread approach of knowledge of understanding is really really important as we move forward and and let's hope that we continue to progress that we continue to take strides to make all our classrooms however they look more inclusive um, more accepting 
and more celebratory of every individual learner's need. Thank you so much to everybody for listening today. I hope that you can take something away from today's show. I know I, as a leader, as an educator, certainly will. Thank you for taking the time to listen today and um, I'll speak to you very soon. Thank you, everyone. Take care. You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.